0: Studying the book of Romans to the level that we've been studying it this year has given us a bit of an opportunity to cover a large range of topics. I I hope you feel that. I hope you don't feel like every single sermon is the same because it's in the same book. There's actually a lot in here. It's given us the opportunity to cover a large range of topics that really are very relevant to our world and where we are today, and into our church, and our community, into where we are today. So we, we explain how Romans is broken up into three movements. In this third movement, movement of Romans, it's Romans 9, Romans 10, and Romans 11. They're, they're no different, though a lot of people think they're different. They think the thought changes. Really, they're, they're no different. They're, they're just as applicable today as the rest of the book. And a, as we, today, and moving forward in this passage, as we struggle... And we wrestle with uh, sort of the, the 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 issues of that Israel was going through, as it pertains to Jesus and Jesus being the Messiah, and what that meant for them and for everything that they'd ever expected and everything that they'd ever hoped for and anticipated. As we kind of put ourselves in the middle of that struggle, we really hope to find ourselves in that text. We hope that we can find solutions to our own struggles. And, to our, and, and we can find our own understandings of God as we today try to navigate a world that is very, very different from the world that Paul was writing to, but yet the, we'll find that same truth through principles and truths that are just as timeless as anything you could ever find anywhere. Uh, so I just want to read to you, we're just going to read to you four, uh, three verses today, starting in verse four. Uh, so last week what we did was we, we opened up chapter nine and we read chapter verse one, two and three, and we talked about Paul's incredibly bold statement that he would be willing to be accursed if it meant that Israel could find their way back to God, which is just this amazing Jesus-like demonstration of the, of the love of God. He, he just sort of pours everything into that passage, and, and he kind of gives us this image of somebody who looks exactly like Jesus, which is what we talked about last week. Uh, so today what we're going to do is we're going to read the verses that follow, and that's verses four, five uh, and six. And this is what it says. Verse 4 says this, they are Israelites. So these are the people that he was talking about. These are the people he was willing to be accursed for. He said they're Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, Is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Okay, I want you to repeat after me. The Word of God has not failed. I don't know, we don't do this very much, but let's do it one more time. The Word of God has not failed. To the single mom who's raising their two kid, her two kids all by herself, and the words of her ex-husband failed. The word of God has not failed. To the family who has just gotten evicted from their home because maybe dad was working an under-the-table job or whatever it might be, and for whatever reason, the boss didn't pay, make the, pay, the, pay the check this week. And the word of your employer failed, Maybe the word of your landlord failed, but the word of God has not failed. To the person who may be sitting in this very room today and you feel like the church has failed you. Maybe you feel like our church has failed you. Maybe you felt judged when you were honest. Or you felt denied when you put yourself out there. Maybe you felt used just for what it is that you can contribute, and then you were let down in that moment when you needed us the most. We failed you. The church may have failed you. But the Word of God has not failed. People fail. But the Word of God has not failed. The Word of God hasn't failed. It hasn't failed. And I, I know that the repetition that I'm sort of just saying this with over and over again, it probably already to you feels like a broken record, but I'm warning you now we're going to be saying this for a while now as we dive into this passage because it is so incredibly significant and this needs to stick. The word of God has not failed. If, if you live your life thinking that it has failed then what is bound to happen is you're going to live your life anticipating that it's going to continue to fail. In general, that's why suffering has led so many people away from Jesus and away from the faith in general because something happens and God, he doesn't quite show up in the way that we believe that he should have shown up in that moment and thus we begin to build an image of God as one of disappointment, of a God who's disappointed, who's disappointed us. And so what happens naturally is God gets smaller and smaller and smaller over time as our problems get bigger and bigger and bigger over time and put this overshadow, they kind of overshadow God until finally we just determine we're all alone. God's not there. We assume that if God does not show up in the exact imprint that we assumed that he would show up, he didn't show up at all. And when you spend your energy frustrated about how God did not show up, it begins to get very easy to miss it when he does. One of the Hebrew definitions for anxiety is the inability to be here. It's when you're sitting in a room full of people that you love, but instead of enjoying their company, your mind is in another place. And it's robbing you of the gift of life that's right in front of you, right here and right now. We talked a couple months ago about that word anxiety and how the Greek word is the word miriam now. And miriam now literally means to be in pieces. It's the opposite of shalom. Hebrew, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And uh, shalom means wholeness. It means you're complete. So the opposite of wholeness, the opposite of being complete is to be in pieces. But it's actually very similar to what the Hebrew meaning of anxiety is too, the idea that you have an inability to be here because when you're in pieces, what does that mean? It's not a whole, it's scattered. It's all over the place. It's everywhere. Part of you can be in one place, another part of you could be in another place. At no point are you collected and whole and in the moment at that time. You know, I've heard it said that this generation, the generation that we're a part of, is the generation of anxiety. And of course we feed that by the way that we've created a world in which we can always be somewhere else while we're right here, simply via technology. I can be teaching something to you about the Bible. The, I could pray, Holy Spirit, impart something in me for this community, and he could have imparted something in me directly for you, and you could be sitting here and listening to me, but not actually listening to me, actually in a whole another world, doing something completely different in your seat, on your phone, or whatever it is. Now, whether that's intentional or it's not, strategic or not, our inability to be here is more prevalent today than it ever has been. It's easier than ever to be someplace, but be dreaming of another place. Because like that's, that's, what, that's coveting, essentially. Like you're in a place, but you're looking toward another place. Uh, we could be dreaming of another place, or we could be, here's the, what we're more likely to do, is we'll be in a place, but we won't actually be there because we're worrying about another place. But when you yourself are only partially in any moment, how then is it that you can expect to find God showing up in that moment? You're not even there. Does he have to just make sure that he steps into that one little fraction of space where maybe you've actually shown up yourself or you've committed to that moment? Or could it be that we are so distracted by our own problems, and our own busyness, and our own drama, and our own anxiety, which is, I deal with this too, a lot, my wife will tell you, that when God actually shows up, it's us that's not there. It's us that's in a different place. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, He talks about anxiety, we've said this a million times, longer than he talks about anything else. He says, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Don't worry about tomorrow because if your thoughts are on tomorrow, then that makes your thoughts on something else other than what's right here and right now and what can be felt and experienced and lived in this moment. But rather, he says, no, live in the moment that you've been given because it's a gift. When you're in a moment, But you're somewhere else. What do you do? You you miss the moment. Like the followers of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. We've mentioned this a couple times in our series. We mentioned it two weeks ago very briefly, and we talked about it when we first introduced you to Romans chapter 1, because it, it puts flesh and blood to everything that Paul is saying about the Jewish people and what the Jewish people were going through at this time. So on the road to Emmaus, Jesus had been crucified three days earlier. And as far as these dudes know who are walking on this road, that dude is dead, Jesus is gone, he's not coming back, he was crucified, and everything was a disappointment. So Jesus shows up because we know that Christ has resurrected. And so the resurrected Christ shows up and he walks with them. And it says that they're sorrowful even as they walk with Jesus. So they're in this amazing moment walking with Jesus and the whole time they're sad. And as they're walking with Jesus, thinking that God, we thought you were the Messiah, but you died, so you're not the Messiah, thinking that he's dead, thinking the whole thing was a sham. Along the way, Luke writes, this is in Luke 24, that Jesus begins to share with them. So he's walking with them, and he's sharing with them how all these prophecies and all this, the law and the whole thing in the Old Testament was actually about him. The covenants, the law, the patriarchs, the promises, in other words, as Paul says here. The very things that Paul in Romans 9 is dealing with and now in 9, it says they still belong to the Jews. And so, so Jesus is walking with them, and he's explaining to them, he's the fulfillment of the whole thing. So then the men on the road, they invite him in, they invite him to dinner, and at the meal, the Bible says that at the table, Jesus blesses the bread. And then the moment that he blesses the bread, suddenly their eyes are opened and they realize, oh my gosh, this has been Jesus the whole time. This is the resurrected Christ. He is the Messiah. And the moment they realized who he was, he disappeared. He was gone. The resurrected Christ vanished before their eyes. And then they began saying things like, did, you, did our hearts not burn within us? Were we not full of passion as he walked us through these scriptures? In other words, how in the world could we miss this? How do we miss it? They were still living in the moment from three days ago when it seemed that their revolution had come to an end and they missed what was right in front of them in that moment. The fact that, actually, in fact, the revolution has just begun. And it was the ones who then would cling to the power of the resurrection, who would come to that realization that Jesus Christ truly is who he said that he is, that he is the Messiah, and that, that he, he it did do all the things that he said that he would do, and he is the fulfillment of the promise. It was those who believed that and embraced that that would then go on to change the whole world. I mean, they turned the whole world upside down. It was the ones who were able to be present enough to realize that death did not have the final word. That Jesus Christ is alive, and he truly is the Messiah. So for Paul, when he writes Romans 9, and he writes about Israel, part of his reason for doing this is to point out, you did, you missed it. But but it's not too late for you. And God still has a plan for you. And so Paul lists these eight things that still belong to Israel. This is the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and the Messiah. Now we're going to go through this very quickly today, and we're going to pick back up on this concept uh, moving forward with the series. Uh, but this is kind of a double-sided thing. See, Paul is absolutely devastated by the condition of Israel, yet he's still helpful for them. At the same time, he's likely a little bit frustrated with Israel. Like, you guys had all of this. This should have been pretty obvious to you. He says that to Israel belongs the adoption. One of the things that is recorded in Exodus is God has Moses tell Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh, Israel is God's firstborn son. They are part of his family. We talked a lot about adoption a few weeks ago. Next, it says the glory Again, glory has been an enormous thread throughout this entire series. We're not going to spend much time on it today, but you you need to go back if you haven't seen it because it's it's very crucial. So what it it is, Paul says in Corinthians that man is actually the image and the glory of God. So as we we fulfill the cultural mandate and we're fruitful and multiply and we do the things that we're supposed to do, we're actually filling the whole earth with the glory of God. But for Israel, they also had an image of God. Like Moses asked to see the glory, and he got to see a portion of the glory. The Shekinah glory like, literally went with Israel. Like it's, it's, They kind of had this other, this other view of God. Plus, they had a 1st experience with a God who literally brought them out of Egypt, out of exile, out, or out of slavery, literally part of the Red Sea, that whole thing. It's the glory of God made, made much of, made manifest. Next, it says the covenants. Again, we've spent more than enough time On the covenants, already, as we've gone through the first eight chapters of this book, but from the time of Abraham when he cut the covenant, the first, the first, um, the first covenant with Israel was was with Abraham, and when he cut the covenant, from that moment on, all the way to the new covenant in Jeremiah thirty-one, and we talked about all of these, every covenant was with Israel. All of those covenants, they were all with Israel. So this was something that was very personal to them, very distinct about Israel, and in the way that God actually pursued Israel over the years and called them out for a very specific purpose. And again, here Paul is saying, Israel, you still have a purpose. God still has a plan. God has been faithful to the covenant. Next they have the giving of the law. Again, we talked about this one, the the ketubah. A ketubah is a marriage contract um, in in Jewish culture. So a ketubah between the the Ten Commandments, which we'll talk about more in a minute, were considered a ketubah, a ten-worded ketubah between God and Israel. Uh, And the idea here is twofold when he talks about the law. First of all, Israel... Would be most without excuse, as we hear in Romans 2, because they had the law. So, Israel, you're more without excuse than anybody because you had it all laid out for you. You actually had a code of what God expected of you and how that relationship was supposed to work, where the Gentiles didn't necessarily have that. But on the flip side, this also states that Israel were the ones whom God actually proposed to. So when you actually understand the Ten Commandments in Exodus uh, 19 and 20 in the setting that takes place, it's literally a marriage proposal of God saying, "I want you to be my bride." So that's why all the times moving forward in the Old Testament, when God says, "I issued them a certificate of divorce, it's because they didn't keep that covenant. But God keeps going back to them every single time. So obviously, if you're just joining us for the first time, some of these things may seem like we're just flying through them, because we've laid a lot of foundation for this for a while. Uh, We've talked in depth already. But here is part of the resistance to Jesus for the Jews. The Jews always thought if they could just keep the law, Donna and I were talking about this last night, like if the Jews had this mindset that if they could just keep the law if they could uphold the law, then they would actually fulfill the law, and thus bring thus the Messiah could come. They thought, if the Messiah, if we fulfill the law and we keep the law, the Messiah will come, and then the way that they believed that it worked is if the Messiah was the firstborn, he would represent all of them, and because he was righteous, they would then all become righteous. But of course, Jesus came Jesus, and he flipped it. He said, This kingdom's actually upside down. It's not going to be a political thing. It's not going to be like he thought it was. And what does Jesus say? He says, I fulfilled the law. So suddenly they're like, Well, what are we supposed to do then? We're supposed to fulfill the law. Next, it says the worship, as in they had the temple, they had the place of worship to God. And then this is a big one the promises. Dawn sets up it in her clothes last week when she was closing out our, our service. I can't quote it word for word, but it was very, very powerful, and I, I'm going to try to grasp it. If not, she'll have to redo it again in her clothes, because that's what she does. She was talking about how Israel, sort of how like we just talked about them, they were trying to fulfill the law. And part of why they wanted uh, to, they, they wanted to fulfill the law because they thought that was their job for the Messiah, and part of why they wanted nothing to do with Jesus and this totally upside-down kingdom that Jesus brought was because if that were true, then to them it would seem like their purpose no longer existed. They were were the carriers of the message. They were the ones, as Romans 3 says, that they they were given the oracles of God. They were entrusted with the oracles, meaning they were given the message, the message of Jesus, or the message of God, and their message was to spread that message across the world of who God is to the nations. But if the message of Jesus is true... In their minds, all of that would have been taken from them. Of course, that's not true. Jesus, the message of Jesus is true, but that didn't actually take it from them. God, what he was doing was he was stepping into their story through the incarnated Jesus, fulfilling that promise to Israel and ushering in the new covenant that was promised by giving flesh and blood to the mission that would belong to them forever. That's how it was supposed to be. But they couldn't see it because their eyes were what? They were somewhere else. They were, they were not catching what was going on right in front of them. You know, I was thinking about Israel this morning, literally just as I was getting ready, and I, I was thinking about how they felt, and I, I was thinking about this message, and I was, I was sort of marinating on it and going over to my head, and suddenly I felt impressed. Felt, I just felt like I was supposed to make sure that I said this to you all, because I believe that somebody in this place needs to hear this more than anything, I don't know why, but it's this. Your story matters. I mean, I had the perfect flow going. I mean, look at this beautiful flow. It gets bold on each one. And I literally disrupted it with this because I I added it this morning because I know that I'm supposed to say this to somebody. I interrupted my whole visual. Listen, somebody in here, all of you in here, whatever. Some of us feel like Israel. We feel like we don't have a role in the plan. We feel like we've blown it, or we've lost too much. We feel like we've blown too much. We feel like too much has been taken from us. And we responded in the worst ways whenever that happened, and so we, whatever, we failed the character test that we talked about a few months ago, and we talked about the crucible and all that. We failed that test. Please hear me. The God of all grace meets you in the broken places. And he will use your pain to pave a path forward for you and for your life and for his purposes. He'll use your pain, he'll use your struggle, the things that you wish didn't happen or you wish went differently. He will use those moments for his glory in your life. I know that it's hard. I know that life is hard. I know some of us are disappointed. But God is not silent. He has not abandoned you. And your best days are still ahead of you for his glory. I really believe that with all my heart. The word of God has not failed. And it's not going to fail you in your life. So next Paul says, to them were the patriarchs, that's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, from them came the covenants, the promises, right? From them came David, David's one who dreamed up the temple where they did the worship, Solomon who built the temple where they worshiped, and then ultimately from them came the Christ. And this is, this is the big moment. From the line of David, from the line of Abraham, from their ancestors— Came the one who was always promised would come. He said, The Messiah will come, he is coming. Now, the Gospel of John tells us something so important as it pertains to what Paul is saying here. The Gospel writer John begins by uh, his account of Jesus by, by saying that in the beginning was the word. It's John 1:1. 1, 1. The Greek word there is the word logos. It's the same word that Paul uses here in Romans 9 when he says the word has not failed, the logos has not failed. Now, the Logos was commonly used to refer to what we call the Old Testament leading up to the time of Jesus. That's, of course, how Paul, uh, how his Jewish reader would have read that sentence. The Word of God has not failed. The promises of old have not failed. The Torah has not failed. The prophecies are still true. Even the Ten Commandments, which we talked about a minute ago, uh, in the Septuagint, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. So when you translate that in Greek, the, the word is deka logos, meaning the Ten Words. Every story, every prophecy, every law, promise, command, it could all be summed up in this one word, logos. The logos also could be used to describe reason or use of logic, as in that's reasonable. Because the holy scriptures, the Bible, there always have been the best way to determine the most logical, most appropriate, most reasonable way to live your life. So for example, just look at the Ten Commandments. Again, Ten Commandments are Deca Logos. Logos, like I said, it comes, it comes from the Latin root for logic. Or reality. It's where reality comes from. So the Ten Commandments, though we always love to call them commandments, really, if you look at it literally, what, it's, what they actually are are not commandments, they're actually realities. The best way I've ever heard this described was by Dr. Frank Seekins. Um, he's a word picture's like, expert. And and he said, and I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he said, this is is how you need to think of the Ten Commandments. If you see a speed limit sign, speed limit, 70. What's that? That's a law, right? And you see that sign and you look around, you don't see any police officers. Maybe you drive a little faster than 70. Maybe you go 75, 76, 78, whatever it might be. And as long as you don't get caught, you're fine. But if you're driving in a semi-truck And you're on the road and you're about to enter a tunnel and outside that tunnel there's a sign that says clearance 11 feet and you know your your semi-truck is 14 feet. That's a reality. It's not a law anymore. Now it's a reality. What will happen is purely logical. We talked about this in our Ten Commandments series we did. Nobody looks around. They look for officers. They say nobody's coming and then just floors it through that tunnel. Nobody would do that. I'm going for it. No, that would destroy you. Ten Commandments. If you commit adultery, you will destroy your family. If you don't honor your father and mother, you don't honor your parents, it will set your life up for a life of failure because you're learning these crucial things at this moment so that all of a sudden, the more, you know, whatever your eye hooks to multiplies and what you get used to, you'll build habits. It'll destroy you as you get older. There's a law about the Sabbath. Sabbath is you work for six days and then you rest on the seventh. Of course we we understand that there are spiritual implications to that but it's only logical that eventually if you never rest you will, your body will eventually burn itself into the ground you will crash you will have nothing left this is not a law just to be oppressive as so many people view it it's actually helpful we could go through all of them and it's the exact same thing in the torah the, the command, the 613, the 611 or 613, by whatever you count, we did that earlier, of Moses, the law of Moses. There were all sorts of things about what to do and how to eat and how you prepare the food you eat. And you may read that and at the time they might be like, well, that's stupid. Why would we do that? But later research proved that, that was actually the, the only way to make that food healthy. It was exactly how they needed to prepare that food in order so that everybody wouldn't get sick when they ate it in that day. There were ancient Jew com- Jewish commentaries on the law and on the oral traditions, uh, or the, which is the spoken words, uh, called the halakha. And halakha is a Jewish word that's all about, it, it's all about ancient law, and what it was was it was a guide for a meaningful life. This is very significant, you gotta hang with this. The word is actually the root word for the Jewish term Jewish law, halakha. And halakha literally means the path that one walks, okay? It's saying, this is the road, the the law, the the, 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 the scriptures, the, the prophecies, the whole thing. This is the path. This is how you get where you want to go in life. This is the way. This is where life is found. It's a piece of what the best way to live looks like. I mean, even the ancient poetry, like the Psalms, the psalmist, he talks about things like anxiety, and he says, I have so much anxiety. When anxiety fills up my life, your consolation brings me joy. It's just depending on the Lord in those moments to be your strength. Or Psalm 34, when he says, I was full of fear, but I sought the Lord. And what happened? The Lord delivered me from my fears. It's poetry, but it's really, really helpful when you understand it in context. Again, we could go through hundreds of examples of poetry, hundreds of examples of laws, and explain them all that way. But here's the thing that makes the Bible just so, so incredible. What John 1 1 says, what it's saying is, he says, in the beginning was the Word. What that's saying is it's always been this way. What God is doing right now, how much God loves you, everything... That John's about to tell us about in a minute. Everything he's about to say has always been true. It didn't start when John wrote it. It didn't start when the account took place that John was writing about. Rather, this was God's way of speaking. What John's talking about is this is God's way of speaking to us what has always been true. So we've talked a lot about how Jesus is the new Adam. We talked about how in Hebrew, the word Adam is Adam. It literally means humanity. So when, when we start talking about Jesus as the new Adam, it's, it's appropriate to understand this as Jesus, and when Paul's saying this, he's not just saying Jesus is the new guy in the garden. He's saying, no, Jesus is the new human. He's the new way to be human. He's the best example of how to live your life. Well, before Jesus, that example was the logos. It was the word as Paul puts it here in Romans 9, that has not failed. But then in John 1:14, it says this. It says, the word, the logos, became flesh, you and I, and tabernacled among us, made his home among us here. The word, the logic, the reason, the reality of how we're supposed to live our lives, the holy scriptures, the Torah, the prophecies, all of it, took on flesh and took on blood. Something that we can actually see, feel, hear, and destroy. And he made his home here with us. It's basically the same concept from a slightly different angle of that idea of the new Adam. The word became flesh. The demonstration of the best way to live was no longer words on a scroll, it was a tangible life, lived utterly outwardly. It was a crown of thorns. And nail-pierced hands and being tormented at the hands of the very people that you existed for that you've given your life for that's our example or as Jesus himself puts it he says I am the way I am the truth I am the life the logos the Bible was the central theme for showing the best way to live and the best way to navigate our world and now that same logic that reasonable sensible life is laid out in the person of Jesus. You know back in Romans 5, Paul talks about peace. He talks about peace that comes through God justifying us by God declaring us righteous. He says because that happened, now now you can have wholeness. He goes on to talk about how we actually now have access into the grace by which we now stand. And we've talked through this, about how that access, is it's, it's, the, the, it's the image of an anchor point. A, a, a ship would come into a harbor and they would park at that anchor point. And when that anchor goes down, you can trust that that ship is not going anywhere. And that's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has died for your sins. And because of that, God has declared you Righteous. He's given you the final verdict and his verdict is not only not guilty but it's actually righteousness. It's actually you are the child of a living God of the living God. You are adopted. It's an anchor that if you let it down and you let it do its job, your life will not be moved by the winds of change. You won't be anxious at the things that everyone else is anxious about. You'll start to see that God has actually designed your life for a purpose, and he has a plan for you. And your life is literally being held in the palm of his hand. And when you come to that ultimate reality that God really truly is on your side, everything else in the world could fall apart around you. But you'll remain anchored. The word of God did not fail because the word the things that Israel believed in and clung to and lived their entire lives by and tried over and over and over again to keep but could not keep because though the word of God did not fail, they did fail. That word took on flesh and blood in the person of Jesus and Jesus didn't fail. Jesus completed his mission and he empowered us for ours. He empowered the church for theirs. See, the the trick of the world is to distract you, to get you off mission. To get your mind on something that'll suck your mind away, put you in another place. To get you to spend all your time over here when you're supposed to be over here. To get you to spend all of your time on things that aren't making an impact on the world or even on your own world or on your own family, on your own mind or your own wholeness. There's a reason so many of us are anxious all the time. We focus our eyes on the things in life where we think that the word of God has failed. And we miss what God is doing right in our midst because we were somewhere else while it was happening right in front of us. We miss it because we read the Bible and we think the law, we we read the law and we think, man, this law is law. We think it's law. We think it's oppression and it makes us crazy. But in reality, it's actually life. Anchor yourself today in Jesus. I don't know what it is for you. I know there's a laundry list for me. And it's my laundry also, but that's a whole other thing. My challenge for you is simple this week. As you seek the Lord, about what he's doing in your life and what he's doing in your community, and as you find that place in which he is your anchor, be there. Be present. Fight to be here. I'm preaching to myself today, fight to be in the moment. Because God is moving in this moment. And he'll be moving in the moments that you walk into after this one. We get to be a part of the renewal of all things. We get to be a part of the reconciliation of the entire world back to God. God is at work in Detroit. He's at work in our city. He's at work in our world. And he's at work in our lives. The word of God has not failed. And it never will fail. The psalmist puts it this way. He says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I'll fail. I may fail. You may fail, but the Word of God will never fail.